This is an ABC podcast. I get this frantic call on my house phone and I answer it and I'm like, hello, you know, and it was my doctor. He was just like, I've got news for you. And I was like, oh, dear, you know, when doctors ring you at home, it's probably not good news. And so he says in this hushed tone, Elise, you're pregnant. And at that point, the world just stopped. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Discovering that you're pregnant is usually a life-changing moment. But for Elise Nelligan, it's a moment that comes with a lot of extra baggage. Today, our reporter Adele Perovic brings us the story of a woman who wants to keep her baby, but who has to ask first whether her body and her doctors will let her. The first time I met Elise, it was in the courtyard outside the arts block, or A block, as us theatre kids called it, at the University of Southern Queensland in Toowoomba. She stood out, partly because she was the only person in a wheelchair, and partly because she dressed to stand out. Everything she wore was bright and feminine, with matching sparkly jewellery and accessories. And she was also the only person who wore a pair of high heels to class every day. It's been quite a few years since I've seen her in the flesh. And after following her on social media for all that time, first up, I need a tour of her wardrobe. So just in here. So this is my walk-in wardrobe. So this is exclusively for my dresses. So my entire walk-in is just for my frocks. But what about shoes? Oh, I do have an extensive shoe collection. I reckon I'd probably have 50 or 60 pairs of shoes, which sounds very extravagant, but I'm in a wheelchair. You never wear your shoes out. So I buy a pair of shoes. I keep them forever. They're pristine. They never get walked in. Oh, and also your wheelchair. Um, What colour is your wheelchair? So, um... No prizes for guessing this. I have a hot pink, like neon pink power chair. So everything that's metal is bright pink. And my foldable chair that goes in the car is a bright pink as well, but it's glitter. And so I'm like literally a sparkly, shiny pink wheelchair. Everything matches. Oh, I know. It's like I've reached a higher level of fashion enlightenment when I can match my bag, my shoes, my chair. And my dress. It wasn't until Elise was 18 months old and not starting to crawl or walk like other kids her age that her parents started to question whether she was a little bit different. Getting diagnosed with a rare illness is not a short process. Um, You know, it's lots of different tests and lots of different appointments. And when you have something as rare as mine, then it's basically looking for a needle in a haystack. They they don't really know where to start. 
Elise grew up in Goolagong and Cowra, in the central west of New South Wales. Her dad had a sheep farm and grew lucent. For any city folks like me, that's the hay that sheep and cows eat. But because of this mystery illness, she and her parents spent her early childhood on the road. They went to hospitals in Bathurst and Orange and then Sydney. And after many invasive and painful tests, the doctors were finally able to narrow Elise's diagnosis down to one of two rare muscle diseases. I was diagnosed with a skeletal muscle disorder, so a generalised weakness of all my muscles in my skeleton. And so they think that it's either minicore or senicore myopathy. I'm what they would consider more severe. So my mobility is the thing that's impacted. So I can't walk or stand up. I can't obviously do daily tasks on, um, by myself. So things like getting dressed, going to the toilet, having a shower, cooking your meal, driving. It's all of those things that are basically your self-care that I struggle with. But back on the farm... The diagnosis didn't really matter. I'm very, very fortunate that my parents had no interest in wrapping me up in cotton wool as a young person with a disability. If they were doing it, I had to do it. All farm kids are created equally (laughs) and everyone has to help. So um, from a very young age, I was helping my dad with the sheep, you know, um, helping him pen the lambs and using drenches and the illustrators and using the dogs to round up. You know, there were some fun things too, like um, riding the tractor, you know, getting to drive the tractor. Three and four-year-old me up on Dad's knee. I used to take my foot plates off my chair so I could, like, drag myself across the ground at the farm, which sounds very degrading, but it was actually very liberating, you know, to just be like any other kid and just getting dirty and loving life. So imagine this, we've got the principal there and the education minister there and we've got the big red ribbon. This is Elisa's first day of school. And I'm there and the the local paper's there and, you know, everyone's taking photos. How amazing are we? How inclusive are we? This is amazing. When her parents had first tried to enrol her at the local primary school in Cowra, the principal said no. But Elisa's parents? Yeah, they weren't having that. They threatened to sue the school and the New South Wales Department of Education. So the principal was forced to accept Elise and modify the school accordingly. And now that the modifications are complete, Elise's first day has become a photo opportunity. I go up and I cut the ribbon with a a pair of scissors, you know, and everyone's clapping and, oh, it's so great, Elise can finally go to school and we get inside the school and every single ramp has a step at the bottom. Yep, you heard that right. Elise can't get over steps in her wheelchair. That was the whole point of the ramps. If you could have seen my mother's face. (laughs) When she had to basically tell these people that they had absolutely no idea about access and they would have to redo everything. So, after the threat of legal action, after the department does the right thing, after the local paper's been called to witness Elisa's first day of school, she has to go home. She will just have to wait for those ramps to be fixed 
so she can actually use them. As a child, I just wanted to play. I wanted to be at school. I wanted to be with my friends and I didn't understand why I couldn't go to school. And so I think it does have a profound impact on you when you can't do what your peers are doing and what your friends are doing because you just want to be like everybody else. And having disability means that you often just get excluded, not because you can't do it, but because there isn't the ability to do it. When she finally gets there, Elise excels at school. She's clever and willing to give anything a go. She races through primary. I was doing cooking and ag class. And then takes on secondary school at Harristown High in Toowoomba. Doing woodwork and metalwork and, you know, pushing things through the cutting machines. Like, my favourite in high school was biology. Um, they got me a lower desk and so I'd be setting things on fire. But when she's in grade 11, she hits a snag. She really wants to do drama, maybe even enough to study it at uni. But drama is taught in one of the upstairs rooms. And there are no lifts or ramps. Until now, this hasn't been an issue. Elisa's classes have all been on ground level. But now, it's a problem. I think it was probably the first time that I'd got extremely angry at the injustice about access because I wanted to do something and just because it was upstairs meant that I couldn't do it. So I was extremely lucky to have a drama teacher that just went, okay, well, we'll have drama outside. And so we literally did drama on the front lawn of the school in the cold, which made such a statement like, we will perform outside rather than exclude this person and I've never let anybody stop me doing anything since. <laughs> Elise becomes the first person with a physical disability to graduate from Harristown, and it catches a lot of people's attention. We already had quite a big educational unit um, for special education at Harristown, but suddenly once there was someone in a wheelchair there, all these young people with disabilities and mobility issues appeared at my school. We went from having me in a wheelchair to having enough for an entire wheelchair basketball team. What's it like being the first person to do something? It's not like fighting for, you know, a cause. You're fighting for your own rights. It's it's great to be the person that's achieved it and um, you have a responsibility to do that, though, so that you can bring everyone along behind you and be able to make sure they have the opportunities that you had. But it is very tiring because you experience the ableism and the lowered expectations that everybody has for people with disabilities, and that's very difficult to deal with. And after she graduates, those freezing outdoor drama classes lead to an offer to study theatre at uni. Elise jumps at the chance. She spends her days studying Elizabethan playwrights and her nights partying with the other theatre kids. She doesn't have much space in her life for anything else. But then, one day, when she least expects it... So I was at home doing an assignment, as you know full well, at the last minute, Adele, 
in your pajamas, hair scraped back, hasn't been washed for three days, no makeup on, coffee on the desk. That day, she's frantically trying to make her deadlines before the end of semester. And yeah, unfortunately, I know exactly what she's talking about. And I heard a knock at the front door. And it was my brother. He'd got a lift to come in and visit me. And here is this gorgeous, six-foot-tall, handsome, older man with him. I was like, great. I've come to the front door in, you know, my literal (laughs) pyjamas to find this absolutely gorgeous person with my brother. As it turns out, the six-foot-tall, gorgeous friend's name is Brendan. You really should never date your siblings' friends, right? Like, that's a cardinal sin. So I didn't sort of think too much of it. And then over the next few weeks, Brennan would conveniently come to visit with my brother. And we actually developed a friendship. Um, And then he'd come and see me at uni and have a coffee. And I'm thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I think I might like this cute boy. (laughs) So... There's the obvious flirting, and then he comes to her uni graduation, which is big, right? But Elise isn't getting her hopes up. You know, I never go into a relationship thinking that it's probably going to last, which I know that probably sounds quite sad, but I've dated lots of guys. I've been very open, you know, to experiences and hoping somebody might, you know, see me for their equal, but I also understand that they may not. And Many times I've had men say, I'm really sorry, I like you a lot. I just can't deal with the chair. But Brennan was really, like, up front. He was like, let's go on a weekend away, you know, and we both love the beach. And so I was really nervous because I was like, you do realise that if you take me away for a weekend, you have to help me and do my personal care, which that's something that's always a fear for us is, like, you you know, you, you're mindful of the care of partner line being blurred. And so he was like, no, let's just go and have a amazing time. So, a romantic weekend on the Gold Coast. This was going to be the test of their relationship. So we went and stayed right in Surfers on the beach, you know, the, the whole sea view, hotel, romance, the whole nine yards. It was amazing. And Brennan wanted to take me to his favourite spot. So um, he took me out to the spit, which is the uh, walkway of rocks that goes out across the water. Here's me in my wheelchair, you know, sort of soft roading. So we, we go out onto the rock wall and I'm thinking, oh, isn't this the most romantic, amazing moment? You know, looking out across the coast. And then I get dumped by a wave. Of course, I can't jump out of the way, can I? I completely got saturated. And here I am like a drowned rat. And I look up and Brennan is just laughing his head off. He didn't get wet, by the way. I was just mortified. But he just thought it was so funny. And then, like, he just cuddled me and he thought it was great. And it it ended up being really sweet. And I can laugh about it now, but I was just devastated. Does nature not want me to be happy? Like... What's going on? And Elisa's concerns about Brendan and that line between romance and day-to-day care, well, it was totally fine. 
it wasn't going to be my disability anyway that would break us up. You know, it would be, you know, just life instead of being in a wheelchair. Flash forward six years. Elise and Brendan are living together and they already have a family. They're kinship carers to two foster kids. So this is where they're at when they make the trip into her doctor's office to discuss what to do about the pregnancy. Even though this baby was an accident, it's a happy one. But in the doctor's office, the mood is definitely not so joyous. We were having a very frank discussion about what I should do or what next. And the doctor? He was pretty certain about the next step. I mean, obviously, he's a an incredible doctor, and so he wasn't trying to, you know, force, but he was giving his honest opinion. And that opinion? He just said, I really think that you need to have an abortion. And what was that like for you? That is just such a devastating conversation to have, especially when you're a couple in your 30s and you already have two children. Brutal as it is, Elisa's doctor's reaction to her pregnancy isn't unusual. Nobody with a muscle disease like Elisa's has safely given birth to a child. And so to hear that you probably should have an abortion was just so devastating. I shut down. I didn't talk to anyone. I was totally withdrawn and just very upset. So we were in limbo waiting for my first ultrasound and it turned out I was 15 weeks pregnant, which I'd had no morning sickness, no symptoms. Like my doctor nearly fell over and seeing her on the screen, this gorgeous jelly bean, like in my heart I knew I had to give it a chance, which was absolutely statistically a stupid idea. You know, I was probably going to get hurt during this pregnancy somehow, but I just seeing her on that screen and seeing Brennan's face when he saw our baby on the screen and the smile that he couldn't wipe off, even though we were scared and we were terrified and we were worried and we didn't know if we could keep her, when we seen her together, it just cemented that I had to try. So Elise and Brendan are set on seeing their little jelly bean grow into a little person. But there are a bunch of doctors to see along the way. And they all need convincing that going ahead is a good idea. The fetus will compromise your breathing. And if the baby takes up too much room and you go into early labour, that would put both your lives at risk. And then this doctor tells her that no one with minicore myopathy has ever given birth to a child. But this time, Elise is armed with some facts of her own. And I went, um, excuse me. (laughs) There is a person in the world that has had not one, but two babies with my disability. And they're like, what? Give me her name. Like, who is this person? So... Elise tells them. Um, Her name is Fiona and she lives in the UK and she's in my worldwide support group for my disability. She's a big advocate. She's an advocate for being a mum with disabilities and she has two 
precious girls that she was able to have. And she's as profoundly affected as me. So the doctors, it was like that flurry as they sort of threw their papers in the air and rushed off to contact the UK to find out about Fiona and the protocols that led to her having safe birth. All her life, Elise has always been the first. First child at her primary school in a wheelchair. First kid to graduate from Harristown with a physical disability. You know, so for once, thank goodness I wasn't the first one. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for paving the way for me. So the doctors have a template. If Elise's breathing becomes compromised, they'll support her with a ventilator and they'll deliver the baby via a scheduled caesarean. But Elise and the baby will have to make it to this magic number, 23 weeks and four days, what the medicos call the point of fetal viability. That's the point where the baby has a decent chance of surviving outside the womb. There wasn't really that ability to enjoy being pregnant. It was just being anxious about the next step, anxious about the next thing, anxious about the next procedure. 16, 17, 18. Anytime I have to have a surgery is risky. There is a chance that it could go wrong. My body might not cope. I could pass away. 19. 20. And the thought of, of that happening to me and never meeting my baby and to lose my life and leave my other children without a mother, all of those things just were looping. 21. 22. 23. Elise makes it to that magic number, that 23 weeks and four days. 24. And then 24. 25. And 25. 26. And 26. But her breathing's starting to become compromised. She's running out of space. I'm already quite weak and fatigued. And being pregnant on top of that, it was really taking a massive toll. 27. 28. 29. 30. The doctors are telling her to hang on for another two weeks. But Elise is struggling to breathe. I was starting to get too big. I was starting to lose energy and, you know, I was getting puffed before I could get a sentence out. So um, I'm laying on the table in the operating theatre and we've got that whole team around me. I just laid there and I thought, you know, if I don't make it, please just let her make it. Please just let her survive. And so as they um, put the mask on my face and sent me to sleep, I just thought I'm laying down my life for her. Please let her live. Please let her live. Please let her live. Please let her live. I'm in ICU. In that moment of just opening your eyes and realising that you've lived 
you've survived, you've made it. You know, I actually did it and I fist pumped the air from the bed and I've got Brendan on one side and my friend Jill on the other and I'm sure they thought it was all the fentanyl but I was so excited I'd, I'd made it and Brendan's first words to me was, she's beautiful. And so I knew that she had lived as well. Usually new parents can go and see their babies immediately, but Elise is stuck in ICU on breathing support. And I was so weak and so exhausted, but all I wanted to do was see her. And so, the nurses attach her mask to her face and manually assist her breathing so they can wheel her bed down to the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU for short. I couldn't see a lot of her, but I could see her back and her hair, and they helped me get my arm out and put my hand on her. And just to touch her and and be near her was just so amazing. You know, all you want to do is hold your baby, and I couldn't yet, but just to be able to see her and, and see that she's real and see how beautiful she was. Like she's been doing her entire life, Elise smashed all the doctor's expectations and was allowed to go home after only five days. But it's bittersweet. I didn't anticipate the stress and the shock to me as a new mum when I left the ward was I would have to leave my baby in the hospital every night. Because the doctors need to keep an eye on her baby, Alessandra Grace. And so that's very stressful because you just want to be with them, you want to be, you know, sleeping near them. It's, it's that natural instinct to be with your baby and it just broke our heart every night to have to go home and not take her home with us. And we did that for 10 weeks. Another week. And then... We prepared to get ready to take her home and... That day is just a buzz in the special care because you come there and you're leaving with your baby. You know, all her things are packed, you know, and you get to bring your pram in and your clothes in and and dress your child for the outside world. And once we said our goodbyes and walked down the corridor, wheeling her in the pram, and you know that she's going to go outside the hospital and you open those doors... She's never seen the outside world before. She's been alive for months and never been outside. And so to take her and be like, here's the world, baby. You know, here's the sky, here's the birds, here's the wind on your face. Here's the trees. Here's the world, baby, here it is. From being only 1.1 kilos at birth, Alessandra is now a tall, sassy, stubborn and cheeky three-year-old. Nine, ten. Cheese! 
everyone automatically assumes that a child of a disabled parent is super deprived. You know, they, they people instantly think that they somehow miss out, but they literally have a portable seat, climbing rack, play gym, bag storage, lunchbox carrier, and wheels wherever we go. Like they're very, they're very happy. <laughs> Hooray for mommy. Oh, thanks, baby. <laughs> Mom, I'll go for a ride. Yep, we can go for a ride. You on? I need you. Okay, let's go. Ready? Okay, you ready for Yep. Yeah, you can put your face up on. Today's story was reported by Adele Perovic. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you have a story to share with us, please get in touch. A voice memo, an email, we'll take it all. Our address is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode from us. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review as well. We love to hear what you think and it helps new people find the show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. This episode was made on the lands of the Jagara, Turrbal, Gaibal and Jarawa people. Our producer is Tamar Cranswick. Sound design and engineering on this episode by Tim Jenkins. The supervising producer was Ian Walker. Our script editor is Sophie Townsend. Our executive producers are Ian Walker and Tom Wright. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time. On the next episode of Days Like These, a woman is forced to confront a deception. And I turned to him in the bed and I said, who's Frank? It will unravel her marriage of 30 years and upend everything she thought she knew about her life. So I was conflicted because on one hand, I could cut his dick off. I hate him for what he's done to me. I'm bitter and I'm twisted. But Intellectually, I couldn't do that because I understood it. That's coming up next week on Days Like These.